Who's your favorite preacher? No, no. I am, I am not fishing for compliments here. I'm, I'm, I, I'm serious. Who's your favorite preacher? Come on, you know you've got your favorite. Uh, we preachers know that we preach our hearts out into a sea of words spoken by other preachers this day. The information that floods our culture brings with it many voices. We know that even on Sundays, you may be listening to a preacher as you drive to church to hear your preacher. And during the week, your ears are graced with the podcasts of other persons in other places. And some of these have become your favorites. They are ones that you return to over and over again. Who are your favorite preachers? Andy Stanley? Andy Stanley on your list? He's a good preacher. Or maybe his daddy. His daddy, Charles Stanley. Now there's a preacher for you, right? Who has T.D. Jakes on their list? Fantastic communicator that he is. Adam Hamilton. Some of you, I bet, have got Adam Hamilton on your list of fave preachers. Some of you are remembering back to a few few years ago, aren't you right now? Maybe you're thinking to yourself of someone like Billy Graham or a great like Norman Vincent Peale. These names are just incredible as they gave their lives in Christian service. Is there anybody here today that might have on their list of favorite preachers Martin Luther King Jr., boy, couldn't he lay it down. He knew what preaching was all about. What a wonderful thing to think about, these favorite preachers of ours. I've got mine. Have I ever told you about Fred Craddock? I use him in illustrations almost every Sunday, I think. One of my favorite preachers of all. And have you heard me speak the name of Barbara Brown Taylor? What an incredible preacher she is. Incredible preacher. But you know what's on my mind right now is a favorite preacher that has come to my attention just in recent weeks. In fact, Sue would agree with me on this, that one of our favorite preachers right now is a lady by the name of Fleming Rutledge, who has pastored the Grace Episcopal Church up in New York City. She has an incredible way of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I, Maybe thinking ourselves, these great preachers of such renown. But have you asked yourself the question here? Who was Jesus's favorite preacher? Think about that just a moment. Who was Jesus's favorite preacher? Now, I'm venturing beyond what Scripture actually tells us. But be with me for just a moment in the thought that Maybe, just maybe, John the baptizer was Jesus' favorite preacher. That Jesus was there in the company of all those that were gathered around John out there in the wilderness. He was the one that John was pointing toward, but he was listening very carefully to John's words, which in some ways were his own words. More developed, of course, in Jesus. But they shared so much. 
in that place. This one who was a regional magnet for people gathering there beside the Jordan River, who did not mince the truth, but spoke words risking the offending of those that were in power, whether they be within the temple elite or whether they be the power that had been manifested there by the takeover of Rome, he cast his words out for all to hear. And you remember it had its effect because there in Herod's celebration, his wife taken on after his own connivings had stolen her away from his brother, she asked for John's head on a platter. Remember? You remember the story. He had a way of offending those that were in places of power. We talk a lot about John during Advent. It's a strange thing. You'd think we'd get past this and get on to the baby Jesus by now. I mean, we're only 10 days out, right? We ought to be talking about something else besides John. No. The guidance that we receive by way of lections in the church and the encouragement is to stay with these days of preparation. Will Williman, another favorite preacher of mine, Will Williman says that perhaps it would be a good thing if we emblazoned at least one card during Advent that we could send out that would have John's image on it. Not the baby Jesus in the main, but John the baptizer's image on it. And maybe there on the front of the card, he suggests that it would say, greetings from our family to yours on this beautiful holiday season. We remember the words of John the baptizer. And then you open it up and it says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come. <laughs> Now, that would be a Christmas card, wouldn't it? <laughs> that would shake you. When, when, word, when word reached Jerusalem of John's preaching, they sent a clergy delegation to come and to investigate. And the question that they raised to John was very, very important. They said to him, who are you? They could hear his words and see the prophetic damage, at least as they interpreted it, that was being done by the things that he was saying. They knew that he was speaking truth to those in power. But they asked him, who are you? And John began to give them a string of knots, those things that he was not. He said, I am not the Messiah, and I am not Elijah, and I am not the prophet, which is sort of his way of again saying, I am not the Messiah, because in Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, there is this reference to this Mosaic prophet that will come and will be the prophet of all prophets, this extension of God himself. He says, I am not the prophet. 
then who are you? As the writer of the gospel account puts it, this gospel according to John, not John the baptizer, but this this disciple of Jesus, this beloved disciple of Jesus, he paints it this way earlier in this chapter. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all, all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. John was always pointing the finger toward Christ, (coughs) always directing attention away from himself. In fact, I have a feeling that he was caught off guard with this question, who are you? Had he really considered this? All he knew was that he was directing his life toward Christ. And in asking that question, it caused him perhaps to have to do his own evaluation. Well, who am I? Who am I? And you know the words that he came up with. These were read just a few moments ago. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the ways of the Lord. That's pretty good, John. That is an accurate description of what you do. And what you do is who you are. Let me say that again. What you do is who you are. While John may have been tempted to make a permanent home in who he was not, in the small cramped space of low expectations and limited responsibility, he assumed a very significant part to play in becoming a witness to the light of Christ. This was his life that he pointed all attention toward the one in whose name we gather this day. Kayla McClurg says, light shows up best in darkness, but you and I don't get that. You see, we relegate all responsibility to these preachers that we hear on the radio to those that are more capable than you and I in actually sharing the witness. We think somehow God has put his imprint on these persons and given them the responsibility for all of us to share the witness of the light that has come into the world. And we do ourselves a disservice and we do our favorite preachers a disservice when it comes to that. I must admit to you that I'm intimidated by the favorite preachers that I have on my list. In fact, I had the undaunting task of preaching to Fred Craddock one day. It was the most intimidating thing I have ever done. I stood before him and my words were tangled 
because my brain could not get past the who that was listening. This one who understood what sermon was supposed to be. This one who understood word in better ways than I will ever comprehend. And yet I laid it out as best I could. And gracious man that he was patted me on the back following this, this sharing. Kayla McClurg says, light shows up best in darkness. I serve the light best not by trying to be the light, but by simply being myself. You get this? A wondering, waiting, longing, doubting, and sometimes lost and tired traveler. Our unique darkness becomes our unique gift. It is how we testify to the light. Jesus does not expect for us to speak like those that we revere. He expects us to share the message that we have in the way that we have received it. The Advent season, coming as it does, just before Christmas, is a time for clarifying who Jesus is. Isn't that a great sentence? I didn't come up with it. That was from Fleming Rutledge, this person that Sue and I have been reading this Advent season. Let me read it again for you. The Advent season, coming as it does just before Christmas, is a time for clarifying who Jesus is. John's function is to leave no doubt, no doubt, about Jesus' identity. All his life is this pointing toward Jesus, directing everything toward Jesus. He says it there before them. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. I grow weary of so many Christmas greeting cards which are nothing more than consolations of vaguely religious wishes for peace and goodwill. You know these, don't you? You're probably processing yourself right now and thinking, what kind of card did I send him? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not thinking about any individual cards here. I'm just thinking in general. Stay with me. You know the cards I'm talking about, don't you? Peace, goodwill to all, and it has, if it has reference to Christ, it has only the barest reference to the nature 
of who we are called to be as his people. Don't you get it? This is risky stuff. This is absolutely life-demanding risk to which we are called. You remember that Isaiah passage that Bob read for us so beautifully just a few moments ago. You remember when we heard that, when it really was brought to our attention, it was not through the Old Testament as much as it was through the New Testament. And you don't look there right now. I'm preaching, okay? But if you want to check it out later in Luke chapter 4, you can read that little scenario of Jesus' beginning his ministry and having communicated with several places, several synagogues throughout Galilee. And then he ends up in Nazareth and he is preaching his first sermon to his hometown church. And in that setting... It says that he took the scroll and when he unrolled the scroll, he began to read to them. And you know what he was reading to them, don't you? He was reading Isaiah 61. Remember these words that have already been read to us. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus chose that text not so that they would like his preaching. But in order to give them a message, now they did like his preaching, and they offered him accolades, sort of midway the sermon. Midway, they were really happy. Is this Joseph's son? Can you believe it? It's Joseph's son. He's done all of these good works. Perhaps he will do these works here amongst us. As well, what great things we will see. And then Jesus launches into his second point. Being that it wasn't going to happen there. And it wasn't because of God, but it was because of them that it wasn't going to happen there. And in fact, that was not going to be a preventative for God getting done what God needed to do. In fact, in the Old Testament, he refers to Elijah and Elisha, and you can read this this afternoon, how God made provisions for getting his work done by going around Israel instead of through Israel. Now, the question is, where are we? Where are we in relationship to what God is doing? In this world of oppression, in this world of marginalization of people, in this world of hopelessness, in this world of despair, and if you cannot see that, then you really are a person living with blinders on. Christ comes to reverse these circumstances, to bring good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, to comfort those who mourn. 
And for those who are saved of Jesus Christ, this is their life's calling. In fact, I would suggest to you, if this is not your life's calling, then your salvation is in question. Y'all may be getting ready to throw me off a cliff. You know, Jesus' hometown church carried him out to the edge of a cliff to kill him after preaching that sermon. You hear me this day, don't you? That our witness must be taken so seriously that our lives become this reflection of Christ's light to the point that we offer ourselves to bind the brokenhearted, to comfort those who mourn, to free those who are captive. When Jesus reveals that we don't do this stuff, God, he says, will find another route. But I don't want him to find another route. Do you? I want him to use us to do his goodwill. This is a voice of witness. We are all asked to offer our lives just as those saints and martyrs who have offered their lives for centuries. You and I are called to offer our lives as witnesses to what Jesus has brought to this world. We are not the light. This is the good part. We don't have to generate this stuff. We didn't come up with the idea. This is Jesus' idea. This is God's gift to the world. All you and I have to do is to celebrate that. It is the great year of Jubilee that we offer in Christ's name because our responsibility is no different than John's responsibility, and that is to point toward the one in whose name we have gathered. This is a day in which we choose to be a voice of witness in order that the world might hear that Christ is Lord. He is Lord of all. As we come to his table, we come at his invitation. Let me remind you that everyone, everyone is invited, invited here at his invitation to join together in this time of confession and pardon and thanksgiving. Would you take your hymnal and turn to page 12?